Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello. Hi, I'm looking for Blair. Hello. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Is this Blair? Yes, it is. Hi, Blair. I'm Phoebe. Thank you very much for speaking. Okay, Phoebe, I'm going to ask a great big favor of you. Yeah. Would you call me back on our landline yes. so that my wife can join us? Great, sure. What's the number? Hello? Hi, can you hear me? Oh, I can hear you fine, thank you. And I think my wife is with me. Hi, Phoebe. Blair and Mary Carbaugh live just outside of Danville, Pennsylvania, on about 100 acres of land that Mary's family has owned nearly her entire life. She remembers planting trees on the land with her father when she was little in the 40s. And now she and her husband Blair plant trees together, specifically American chestnut trees. How many trees, chestnuts, do you have? We originally planted 500, and then we planted, two years later, we planted 500 more. So right there on your 100 acres, you have you've done an awful lot to help with the future of chestnuts in this country. We hope. We hope. Today, most American chestnut trees only live to be between 10 and 15 years old, and then they get sick and die. This didn't used to be the case. According to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they used to live for 500 years, even 800 years. They were huge, more than 100 feet tall, and one in North Carolina was said to be 17 feet wide. The flowers of male American chestnuts are called catkins. Catkins are long, white, fluffy blossoms. When they were in full bloom, people said it looked like the trees were covered in snow in the middle of the summer. People used to say that a squirrel could make it all the way from Georgia to Maine without ever touching the ground, just jumping from chestnut tree to chestnut tree. But then, in the summer of 1904, a man named Herman Merkel noticed something. He was the chief forester at the Bronx Zoo, Back then, it was called the New York Zoological Park. He noticed that the leaves on one of the American chestnuts were brown and withering, but it was summer, too early in the season for them to fall. And there were small orange dots on the tree's trunk and branches. First, he brought in gallons of fungicide on a horse-drawn wagon, but that didn't seem to have any effect at all. Whatever was making the American chestnut tree sick was spreading. Herman Merkel began to notice small orange dots on more and more trees. Next, it went from the Bronx down to the New York Botanical Gardens, 
where 300 trees became infected and died. It spread across the East River into Brooklyn, 1,400 dead trees in Prospect Park. By May of 1908, the New York Times reported, quote, chestnut trees are doomed. A researcher from the New York Botanical Garden told the paper that the disease was a fungus that appeared to kill the tree from the inside, getting underneath the tree's bark and sort of starving it. He said, quote, The spores from the fungi are formed in the fall and disseminated in the spring, not by the millions, but by billions. Everywhere there is a crack in the bark of the tree made by the wind or by the claws of a squirrel, these spores are deposited and the work of destruction begins. People wrote letters to the New York Botanical Gardens, worrying that the blight was punishment for the, quote, sinfulness, extravagance, and general wickedness of the people of the United States. Scientists tried to quarantine the healthy trees. Farmers were told that if they saw any trees on their land that were starting to look as if they could be infected, they should chop them down right away. People came up with various ways to treat the blight, drilling holes into the wood and filling them with rusty nails, or pouring poison onto the tree's roots. Boy Scouts volunteered to search through forests to find any chestnut trees that had signs of the blight, and then chop them down and burn them. In February of 1912, scientists and politicians gathered in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to talk about what to do. One politician from New York insisted that they needed to take some sort of bold action right away, even if they didn't totally understand the disease yet. He said it was un-American not to. He said, If we had waited until the application of steam should be thoroughly understood, we would be still waiting for our great trains and steamboats, which are the marvel of the age. But then a pathologist spoke and told the room, quote, I believe in being honest with the public and admitting frankly that we know of no way to control this disease. No one could stop it. As the science writer Susan Frankel wrote in her book, American Chestnut, quote, The blight killed between three and four billion trees, enough trees to fill nine million acres, enough trees to cover Yellowstone National Park 1,800 times over, enough trees to give two to every person on the planet at that time. We've been trying to figure out how to save the American chestnut trees from this blight for more than a 100 years. We're still trying. Today, we try in three main ways. Genetic manipulation of the tree, trying to make the fungus sick so it can't hurt the tree, and finally, breeding different chestnut trees with each other, trying to find a combination that can withstand the blight, planting those seedlings, and then waiting to see if they survive. That's what Blair and Mary Carbaugh are doing, planting a thousand trees on their land. Blair says that of those thousand they've planted, only about 12 have survived. But he and Mary are sticking with it. He's 91, and she just turned 84. It's a very sad thing, you know, this constant fight to save something with no idea if it, if it can actually be done. 
We have no idea if it can actually be done. I think that's a good statement. We're, we're going, we'll continue at it as long as we're able. <laughs> this is a story about people coming together, willing to try something that might not work. And if it does work, it will take a long, long time. Longer than most of us have. But the people we're speaking with don't mind that. They still think it's worth a try. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Support for This Is Love comes from Indeed. Hiring someone new can sometimes feel like finding a missing puzzle piece. The right person can complete a team, but the search can take a long time. And sometimes it feels entirely up to chance. Indeed is designed to help you find that perfect match much easier and much faster. Indeed's matching engine learns from your preferences for job candidates and becomes more accurate over time. That means the more you use it, the better it gets. You also don't need to worry about the busy work of hiring. Indeed will help you with scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash thisislove. Just go to Indeed.com slash thisislove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash thisislove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, And their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I've always heard the chestnut described as a cradle-to-grave species. It can be used for cribs and coffins and anything in between. And um, therefore, I, I also like to say it's a, um, a jack-of-all-trades. You know, I, I, always, <laughs> I always feel like the American chestnut is like the Pittsburgh Steelers of the trees, right? It's very utilitarian. It can serve all these different purposes. Sarah Fern Fitzsimmons is the Director of Restoration at the American Chestnut Foundation. They've been working for decades to try to create blight-resistant trees. She says the chestnut leaf looks kind of like a canoe, pointed on both ends. And the dentation is a breaking ocean wave. And so you have this very fluid 
leaf shape. The leaves hang down and, and kind of wave. They're very flexible and, and kind of flow with the wind. And, and I find that very interesting in contrast to the rigidness of, of the trunk. The tree's wood was used for everything. Telegraph and telephone poles, packing crates, instruments. It was a popular wood for log cabins and railroad ties. It lined the inside of coffins. And every part of the tree was useful. Even the leaves were used as mattress stuffing. But they made so much noise that some people called them talking beds. Before the blight, when one out of every four hardwood trees in the eastern part of the country was a chestnut tree, huge amounts of spiky globes, called burrs, would open up to reveal the chestnuts themselves. They would pile up on the ground in the fall, at a time when other food was beginning to become scarce, and feed both animals and people. It was said that there were sometimes so many chestnuts that they were scooped up with a shovel, rather than gathered by hand. Members of Eastern Native American tribes made bread and cakes from ground chestnuts. They used the leaves to make tea to treat joint pain and colds. Many indigenous people called the American chestnut the grandfather of the forest. For millions and millions of years, the American chestnut tree thrived. And then, within a span of 40 years, all but disappeared. What happened? Um, I mean, it is dramatic what happened to the American chestnut. I mean, if you would just kind of take me through what went on. You know, uh, in, in the 1700s and throughout the mid-1800s, people were importing all kinds of exotic species that they loved from their homelands. So you had tons of plant material exchanged. Through that time, you had nurseries selling exotic materials with little to no oversight, like we do today at our ports uh, with the USDA and things like that. One species that was particularly of interest at the time was Japanese chestnut. And you can look at nursery advertisements in like the New York Times or the Philadelphia Inquirer at the time in, in the late 18, mid to late 1800s, you'll see advertisements for the Japanese chestnut. It is a stately tree. It's, it's very pretty. It's a really good looking tree. Um, that's what brought the blight over. The Japanese chestnut was harboring uh, spores, fungus of Cryphonectria parasitica, the current scientific name of chestnut blight fungus. Those trees were imported, shipped across the US, and you started seeing reports in agricultural documents that said chestnut trees are starting to die, we don't know what it is. Um, you know, reports here and there of, of trees dying. By the time the blight appeared on trees at the Bronx Zoo in 1904, it had already been in the United States for a while. There was no way to contain it. And you can see that the port cities, uh, Newark, New York, Philadelphia, that's where the chestnut blight pandemic really started, and it, it just blossomed from there, moving 20 to 50 miles a year. And uh, by 1913, it was halfway across Pennsylvania, having eradicated virtually all of the chestnut trees in that state. And by 1950, it had swept through the entirety of the range. People remembered hearing the way it sounded when the huge dead trees would fall. Sarah says her grandfather would talk with her about losing the trees, and that before he died, he told her, make sure that the trees come back. He remembered the, the loss of the chestnut and 
when I started doing this work and came back and talked to him and talked to other people who were alive when the, when the fungus spread through, I mean, it was because they had huge ties to it economically, um, culturally, uh, it was part of people's livelihoods. Um, it was devastating. To be, and and that's, that's very much in contrast to today, where not as many people have those direct connections to the land. Their livelihood isn't connected to the land. You know, if you, if you don't know the difference between the species, if you just see, oh, well, you know, there's a few dead trees there, you may not really recognize the ecological impact that this is having or even the economic impact that this is having in domestic wood production. Tell me, once it became clear that the, this blight was spreading and spreading quickly, what were some of the measures that people took to save their chestnuts and, and chestnuts that maybe hadn't been touched by the blight yet? Yeah, uh, people, t- people tried virtually everything. And it's, it's kind of interesting, even today, where there are remnant sprouts in uh, woods, people still try any measure of things to try and save their trees. In the early 1900s, people tried, you know, every fungicide that they could get a hold of, just spraying chemicals on trees to try and stop the disease. Um, So fungicides, you know, spraying trees up into, you know, 100 foot tall up into the canopy to keep the blight from moving. Lots of people tried what they call sort of fire breaks, where you go in and you cut down just huge swaths of dead trees or even trees ahead of the marching disease front to try and keep it from getting to trees ahead of that. Um, none of that worked. You know, the, the blight fungus is wind spread, it's spread on animals. The spores can get past pretty much anything that we could throw at it, and it did. And then in the 1950s, um, the uh, uh, people started irradiating <laughs> chestnuts when uh, the, the nuclear era was at its height. People just started throwing chestnuts into nuclear reactors and thinking, well, you know, radiation will mutate resistance into chestnuts. And some of those trees are actually still alive, not, not resistant, but um, still alive and sprouting. And then uh, in the 80s, you had people trying to breed resistance in. And uh, in the 90s, you started seeing uh, more biotech approaches uh, being applied to the chestnut. So for over 100 years, we have been throwing everything that we can think of <laughs> to either save the trees that are still out there or, or recover them and, and restore them. Sarah says she's met a lot of people who are trying to help. She calls them citizen scientists. She told us about a man who wanted to fill tights with batteries and then wrap the tights around a tree, thinking the battery acid might kill the fungus. And about an orthopedist in South Carolina named Joe James. He planted a bunch of chestnut trees um, with the American Chestnut Foundation in the 90s, and, and they all died. And he's like, well, well, what happened? So he replanted, and they all died again. And he's, well, what, what is going on, you know? And so he was bound and determined to figure out what was going on. And he's been, ever since, you know, now for 20, close to 30 years, he's been working with um, uh, plant pathologists to find resistance in trees. You know, he had no formal training in forestry or pathology. He was a doctor, a a medical doctor, Um, and he's just persistent. She told us about an engineer in western New York who had an enormous 90-foot chestnut tree and was desperate to save it, or at least save its offspring, And so he carefully built a tall scaffold so he could climb up and get all the tree's nuts before the squirrels did, and then give them to gene conservation orchards. 
And she told us about a man named Chandis Klinger, who created something Sarah calls the robot tree. Chandis Klinger has an advanced form of Parkinson's, and so his daughter, Christy Klinger, agreed to talk about his work. She remembers that in the 80s, her father started noticing that something was wrong with his chestnuts and started attending meetings with other people who were also worried about the trees. And I do remember after one of those very first meetings, my dad came home and I was in high school and I was taking high school biology and he was like, you know, they're talking about the genetics of the tree. You've learned about genetics in, in, in biology, right? And I said, yes. And he said, can you teach me? So in the best way I could, I tried to teach my father um, genetics, which was mostly talking about fruit flies and Mendelian squares, because that's what you learn in high school. Chandice Klinger got more involved, learning about ways to keep his trees alive long enough to try to breed them with, for instance, the Chinese chestnut, which isn't as vulnerable to the blight. He learned about something called mud packing, taking mud from under the tree and putting it on the infected area of the tree trunk. And then, to sort of seal in or create a shell around the tree, Chandis Klinger cut up industrial-sized tin cans and made almost like a suit of armor that covered the entire trunk of the tree. So it's pretty pretty noticeable when you walk through the woods and you see something that looks like a tin man standing in the middle of the forest. You know, I just think about him standing out there stacking those coffee cans and just thinking to himself, please just survive a little bit longer, just survive a little bit longer so so that these seedlings have a chance. And that was exactly what he thought. But none of those early trees survived. The mud, the cans, none of it worked. But he didn't give up. And now, because he's no longer able to go and check on his trees, Christy goes for him. Dad always kept a log of the trees. And once he lost track of that, um, we did the best we could. So we still have that log going. And so when we go up at least once a year, we go up with the, the clipboard, identify the tree, measure it, see how tall it is, see if there's any signs of, of deer browse, which is where they rub their antlers against the tree or, um, or eating the tree. Um, if it's producing burrs. So we we kind of write down notes on it. And then, of course, the finale of that is we always have to come down and and tell Dad about his chestnut trees because he's not able to go up there and see them, but he loves to hear about them. So you go up, you make your report, and then you go down and sit down with your father and say, okay, here's how they're doing. Correct. It definitely brings a tear to his eye every time you start talking about his chestnut trees. You know, one of the things that's so heartbreaking is that my dad is not able to see these trees. And we just recently had a conversation about getting some more seedlings that we can plant closer to the house so that he'll be able to look out. And even though they're not his trees, it's still an American chestnut tree that he was he was so vital to in the very beginning with helping helping that come to fruition. Chandis Klinger was part of the group of volunteers who planted the first generation of American Chestnut Foundation breeding experiments. And he was one of the first people to plant in natural forest instead of orchards. 
Sarah Fern Fitzsimmons told us that the other thing that's special about Chandis Klinger is that his kids are involved, picking up where he left off. She says none of this will work unless we accept that it's a very long project, many generations long. Sarah used to meet with Chandis to check on the trees, and now she meets with Christy. Christy told us that she remembers once feeling very eager to show Sarah a tree that had grown tall and seemed especially healthy. When she looked up, she, she pointed and said, no, there's blight right there. And it, that, was, that was very, very sad. Because that was one of the trees that I was so proud to show her because it was, you know, it's the tallest one we have. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's a diameter of probably about eight inches. Um, and it was putting out burrs. Uh, that was the one the bears were going after. So I was really, really super proud of that tree. And then when she pointed out it had blight, I, my heart sank. I, I always say, you know, death, taxes, and chestnut plate. Um, eventually, unfortunately, they all get the blight. It's, a, it's like you just want to stand around it and I put up some sort of saran wrap or something to protect just one just can I just keep one safe yeah and, and so I had um I had a great interaction with a fellow last week um he was scouting out a place to go archery hunting and then he looked up and he saw this just amazing beautiful chestnut tree and he's like I knew it was an American chestnut and what can I do to save this tree <laughs> you know and I'm like nothing there's um, there's nothing you can do you know um you can collect the nuts from it. If, it. if it has burrs around the bottom, collect nuts and we'll plant them to try and, you know, save its kids or, you know, collect cyan from the tree so that we can graft it. And again, you know, preserve the, the genes to conserve the genetic component of that tree. But that tree specifically, there's nothing we can do, at least right now. How do you work on something Continue to work on something, work really hard at something that you know may not work? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I think um, I take great pride in working with, again, the species, but really it's the people. You know, a lot of the people that I work with are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, sometimes 90s. They were the one who saw um, species decline uh, during the original pandemic. And, you know, they're really the ones who say, I'm doing this for my grandkids or I'm doing this for my great grandkids. And, you know, I say the same thing. I'm doing this for my kids. You know, my kids are three and five. Um, This is a 100, 200, 300 plus year long uh, vision. And we have to keep passing on that hope and love of healthy forests. If I were going to go out and search for a chestnut tree. What, what would I look for? Where would I go and what would I look for? There's an old saying that says, where there be mountains, there be chestnuts. And, and that's, that's absolutely true. If you want to see lots and lots of chestnuts, um, hike the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> that's going to be, you're going to find um, thousands and thousands of trees, most of which are going to be about 15 feet in height or lower. That's mostly what you're going to see. You could look as far west as the Ohio Valley, Look around in areas where it's dry, well-drained, rocky places, places where there isn't a lot of clay. 
If you're looking for chestnuts themselves, you need a place that gets full sun all day. And if you find some, you can roast them in your oven. You can also buy them at the store. But they probably won't be American chestnuts. They're likely Chinese chestnuts or imported from Europe. Restoration efforts are being led all along the eastern part of the country. In New York, a professor named William Powell at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry has been splicing genes since the early 90s to try to save the tree. He and his colleagues have found a combination that seems promising. The Eastern Cherokee Band of Indians has announced plans to create an American chestnut orchard not far from the Great Smoky Mountains, where they'll evaluate blight-resistant seedlings. But the only way to know for sure is to plant and to wait. People are planting seedlings in their backyards. They're going into forests in groups or alone. And each is hoping that maybe the seedling they plant will resist the blight. There's so much out in nature that's just, you know, makes your day. <laughs> Elizabeth Schwartz is a retired English teacher in Treverton, Pennsylvania. You're, you're getting like a chestnut. It looks like something that you would uh, bake, roast for Christmas. And that, but it has growth on it. It's, it's ready to sprout. And that you have to delicately put in this, uh, in this ground. It was really quite an experience. We just had a tiny little hole-like thing in our hands, just something little. And then we were supposed to dig down so far. They gave us the instructions for how deep to put this in, cover it up. And then, of course, uh, there were sticks to tie it to and to put up protection around it. And that, to me, was just, wow. I thought, let's try this, you know, let's see what it, what's going to happen here. She says she goes back out all the time to check up on the chestnuts she planted. Just to see if anything was coming out of the ground. And I'd be excited when I'd see green leaves, you know. And now they're taller than me. She says she hopes that the trees she planted will long outlive her. I'm used to writing and poetry and stuff like that. But this was, you're putting something in the ground. And you know that generations from now, you hope that somebody's going to go by and say, wow, that is one beautiful tree, you know. And it's just, a, it's a very neat feeling. There's a poem by W.S. Merwin called Place. The first lines read, On the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. This is Love is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Susanna Robertson is our producer. Audio mix by Rob Byers. Engineering by Russ Henry. Special thanks to Lily Clark. You can find out more about This is Love at thisislovepodcast.com or on Facebook and Twitter at This is Love Show. This is Love is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.